Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. This reading comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 20 through 27, and it can be found on the pages in your Bible around you. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who has betrayed him. They began to question among themselves which of them it it might be who would do this. A dispute rose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table. Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So last week I was helping facilitate uh, a conversation with about 40 pastors and leaders from our denomination. And I'm going to pause right there because uh, some of you don't know that we're actually part of a denomination. (laughs) What's a denomination? Uh, And believe it or not, it's a Baptist denomination. And now some of you probably want to, like, quit and leave and forget Oak Hills. But it is specifically called the North American Baptist Conference. It's comprised of about 400 churches throughout the United States and Canada, missionaries all over the world. And the North American Baptist Conference, or what we affectionately refer to it as the NAB, is headquartered out in Roseville. It's where Kent works now. And a handful of others, actually several others, who attend Oak Hills, uh, work at the denomination offices, and one of Kent's jobs is to gather pastors and leaders from all around the denomination uh, throughout the U.S. and Canada and get them together and create a space for conversation and dialogue about the spiritual formation of those who pastor and who give leadership to churches. In other words, Kent's job is to get pastors and leaders together to talk about how they're doing in their own life with God, their own inner life as they seek to lead others. And it is a crucial role he plays, and it's a crucial conversation that he is trying to stir up. And as a side note, I have been in several of these gatherings with Kent over the past couple of years, and he's doing an absolute remarkable job in these settings. He's just creating a space where he's stirring up hunger for personal transformation in those whose vocation is to lead others spiritually. This may come as a surprise to you, but wise people down through the centuries have often observed that the quickest way to lose your soul and shrink your heart is to become a Christian minister or leader. And Kent is helping leaders face themselves in the journey. He's helping pastors and leaders have a life with God outside of their job and experience the Spirit's work in their own 
hearts. He's doing a great job. It's a great work. So I was in this small group with two others during this recent gathering. And one guy who's been in ministry for a long time opened our discussion in our little group of three by telling us that when he walks into a room filled with other pastors and leaders, he immediately starts to compare himself to them to see where he stands in the pecking order in terms of smarts, experience, looks, size of church, wisdom, insight, education level, success level, and who knows what else. And I suppose it would be comforting if we could kind of roll our eyes and sigh and dismiss him as some kind of outlier who needs a lot of help. But I have a hunch if we slow down for just a moment and kind of let the honesty inside of us bubble up, we just might be able to relate to this unusually honest fellow Christ follower. In fact, I might even just encourage us to think for a minute, were there any similar interior games going off in us when we walked into this room today? What is your scale of comparison? What do you use to measure yourself? Success? Money? Title? Attractiveness? Thinness? Respectability? Likeability? Brains? Physique? What's the scale you use to measure yourself against others? We're in week two of our Lenten series, and as we've already mentioned, we're talking today about less comparison and more contentment. Less concern about how we compare with others in any given room on whatever scale we use, and more contentment with who we are and with what we have and with the work God is doing in us. And so to begin, let's talk for a minute about less comparison and more contentment with self. In my opinion, the beginning of this discussion is right here. And if we don't sink into this and understand this, we're really just kind of fiddling around with it. Because this is the essence, in my mind, of less comparison and more contentment. It begins with less comparison and more contentment with ourselves. On the surface, at first glance, most people appear to be okay. We look okay, we sound okay when someone asks how we're doing. Typically, oh, I'm doing well, I'm doing fine, I'm doing good. We seem to have things together. And if you just survey any given room at any given time, most people seem to have it together. But for some, and I'll admit after so many years of doing this kind of work, I would even suggest for many, we only show other people a portion of the whole picture of what's happening within us. Because beneath the surface, or if you prefer, beyond the edge of the picture we show to others, there is this prevailing sense of lack. What we might say, an ethic of scarcity. And it is an ethic of scarcity about ourselves. It is a sense of lack about ourselves. So we don't think we actually are okay. We don't feel like we measure up. We carry around this sense that we aren't enough. We're sort of irreparably broken. We live in this condition of dis-ease, we might say. And it's kind of a secret we carry. And if you can relate to this, then you know what it means to live restlessly. might be a low-grade restlessness, 
but there's a restlessness. There's an uneasiness. Every day, there's an obligation to prove yet again that we have what it takes, that we measure up, that we're worth it. And most of all, when we live with this restlessness and this uneasiness, we tend to be stuck in the comparison trap where without even trying and without even thinking, when we walk into a room, we size ourselves up against other people and we compare and we compete and so on. And so comparing ourselves to others gets so ingrained into us, we do it without even thinking about it, and we do it without even trying. I don't know who said it, but one of the kids that was up front when Stephanie said, when someone's better than you, how do you respond to that? The girl that got my attention, whom I related to frighteningly well, she kind of stood up on her knees and said, it's a challenge when someone's better. And I'm going, I know where you're coming from, sister. (laughs) So I have this place that I work out and this is a, a a disease, a sickness I've told you about before. But I go to this place, it's an individual workout, there's a bank of treadmills and a bank of rowers and it doesn't matter how hard I try not to. I do two things when I walk in. I look for someone who has, looks like they might have had ACL surgery recently or looks like they're, you know, like ready for back surgery and I get next to them and then when the treadmill's going or we're on the rower, I try not to, but I'm glancing over. What speed are they going? How fast are they going? And I have one single goal and it's to destroy them because we're in an Olympic event and they just don't know about it. And I'm going to bring home the gold, and when I get home, I'm going to regale Julie with how wonderful I was. I destroyed this person next to me. Really, who was it? Oh, I don't know. It was an 80-year-old. They look like they're on their way out, but I won. It's a great big sickness, I admit it. But it's kind of what we do. And in Luke 22, Jesus is with his disciples, and we can't miss this. This is Luke's version. He's with his disciples at the Last Supper. And they are feasting together, and they are inaugurating what we now know as the Lord's table or communion. And Jesus tells his disciples that someone at the table is going to betray him, and these disciples are perfectly human. And so they start trying to figure out which one it is. One of them is about to do something really bad, and they're trying to solve the case. But if you read between the lines, they're really trying to point the finger of blame away from themselves and onto someone else. Which is why, in what is also perfectly human, verse 24 says, At the Lord's table, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, is that not astounding? They're at the Last Supper, just a few hours before Jesus is arrested, They've been with him for three years, and there they are at the Last Supper comparing themselves to each other and competing with each other as to who is the greatest. So this discussion of who is going to betray Jesus turns into a discussion of who is his favorite, who's ranked number one. Leave it to a bunch of humans to create a pecking order at the Lord's table and at the Last Supper. The irony is a sermon all its own for us to ponder. 
There are a few times in the Gospels where the disciples fall into this comparison trap, and this is one of them. Who is the best? Who's the most important? Who does Jesus like the most? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are walking around in the garden without any clothes on, and they're not even thinking about it. Now, you just imagine that. They're not thinking about it. It's not even in their head. But in Genesis chapter 3, they sin against God. And immediately after they sin against God, the Bible says the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Sin came and the first thing they did was they covered themselves and they hid because they no longer felt whole or complete or accepted as is. And that, my friends, is a window into what is going on in the human soul, into every human soul. And so this discontentment with self is an ancient, deep, core consequence of sin and the shame it produces. This discontentment with self rumbles and stirs deep in the human heart and deep in the human soul. Put it this way, in a post-Genesis 3 world, in a world after sin has entered it, discontentment with self is woven right into the fabric of our broken souls. If you will, it is like paint soaked into the canvas of our inner being. And people end up living with a sense of being incomplete and a sense of being flawed, and we hide this from one another. We live with a sense that we've missed out. Somewhere along the way, we weren't standing in the right line when certain things were handed out, and we didn't get what we should have gotten. So we live in this suffocating lie of if only. If only I was you fill in the blank, then I wouldn't be, you fill in the blank. Or if only I was, you fill in the blank, I would have, you fill in the blank. So we play the comparison game to try and quiet the discontent within. Now, this table is in our sight line for a reason. This bread as the body of Christ and this cup as his blood confronts in the most gracious of ways, the discontent with self we carry in our souls. About 15 years ago, I was at lunch with a mentor of mine, and I was struggling with the very thing we are talking about here today, self-dis-ease. And I was asking this mentor, how do I deal with this? How do I overcome this? How do I grow in this? And I'll never forget his response. This is what he said. This is nearly a quote. He said, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. In Christ, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness. You have been brought to fullness in Christ. And when you accept God's view of you, something new will begin in you. And I don't know why, but what he said breached my defenses. And it finally got past all the resistance. And the seeds of some pretty deep transformation were sown when he said those words. So a central issue on the journey toward less comparison and more contentment is discovering and experiencing our identity in Jesus Christ and living from the strength 
of knowing who we are in Him. Let me put it a little differently. We will never be at ease with ourselves if our identity is in how we perform or how we stack up against others. And if we can at least get a B in comparison to others, then we're okay. We will never be at ease with ourselves if our identity is in how loudly people cheer for us or how much money we have or how important we are or how much people listen to us or what our job title is. Contentment comes from living into the grand vision of who we are in Jesus Christ. Hence the crucial importance of the table, this table, where we rehearse And we remember his life, his death, and his sacrifice to break the power of sin and shame and liberate us from the trap of comparison so we can rest in his immeasurable love. See, this is spiritual formation 101. Knowing, not just in our heads, but knowing experientially. Knowing because we have seen and tasted and felt the love of God for us poured out on our behalf in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. This is out of the New Living Translation. I simply want you to listen to this, and then in a minute I'll put up a portion of it on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to this, these followers of Christ, and he's praying for them, and he says, When I think of the wisdom and scope of God's plan, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will give you mighty inner strength through his Holy Spirit. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love and may you have the power to understand as all God's people should how wide, how long, how high and how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ though it is so great you will never fully understand it. Then you will be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. See, this table in our line of sight constantly confronts the dis-ease within us by constantly announcing the love of Christ for us. And so the comparisons and the pecking orders and the grading scales are all emanating from lies we have chosen to believe and lies we continue to believe But real life begins when the Spirit of God cultivates a contentment within us of knowing we are God's beloved, period. We get a taste of life from this God-given strength, and we gradually learn to rest in who we are in Christ. Now, this takes time, obviously. It's not a one-time flip of a switch. It's about learning to trust what God says about us more than we trust what the lies in our heads say about us. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Now, we can keep going. I can jump into point two. We can can point two and go to the communion table. But I got to tell you, this is not a new concept for us here at Oak Hills. We play with this idea of identity all the time. But I want you to make sure we're clear on this. Contentment with self is not just another thing to sit and listen to on a Sunday at church. 
This thing we're talking about is in a unique category. This is a core issue in life. This is a core issue in relationships. This is a core issue in Christian community. This is a core issue in this journey of transformation. This is foundational, but it is incredibly elusive. And it is extremely rare to encounter people who have taken this in and said, that's where I'm going to begin my life with my identity in Christ. So we can rush ahead into some other point. But don't put this in the same bucket as everything else, because this is essential to life well lived. When the truth that we are God's beloved begins to take root in our souls, we change. Period. Life changes. Marriages change. Relationships change. Comparison decreases when this takes root. Pecking orders fade. Competition no longer captivates. Criticism is no longer our first language. Who gets the credit is no longer the primary question. The need to prove ourselves is no longer the primary motivation. We become people of grace. People who are at ease with self in this difficult world. This is Formation 101. No need to go any further if this hasn't taken deep root. And I don't care how long we have technically been a Christian, and I don't care how long we have sat in church services, neither of those have anything to do with whether or not our identity is who we are to Jesus Christ. See, we're talking here about matters of the soul only the Spirit of God can reach. And if we don't want Him to reach those things, if we don't allow Him in that far, if we block Him, if we clutter up our lives with other stuff we've got to deal with, He'll oblige. He'll leave us alone. He'll leave our identity intact, though remember, our identity is not in fact intact. It is at the mercy of our latest performance. So hear this. God has done well by you. And just let that sit on you. How does that sit with you? God has done well by you. Do you know who you are? Is the starting point of your identity, the starting point of your life, the starting point of your marriage, the starting point of your career, the starting point of your family, and the starting point of your friendships, that you are God's beloved daughter or son? Imagine for a moment if Paul's prayer became your reality. Envision a day where the love of God is what you rested in and stayed tethered to. And you were soaked in it in such a way that you lived from the strength of it. Paul's words again, may your roots go down deep into the soul soil of God's marvelous love and may you have the power to understand as all God's people should how wide how long, how high, and how deep His love really is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is so great, you'll never fully understand it. Then you'll be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So, less comparison and more contentment with self, 
Second and last, less comparison and more contentment with others. The disciples start comparing themselves to each other uh, and ranking each other and posturing and positioning to be number one. Back in Genesis, right after sin enters the world in Genesis 3, we get to Genesis 4 and Cain gets jealous of Abel and he goes and kills him. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, Saul is the king of Israel. This young upstart named David is starting to make a name for himself and this boils Saul's blood and he can't take it and he lashes out at David and he tries to kill him and he destroys his own soul in the process. So there it is, envy, jealousy, criticism interesting little word in 1 Samuel 18 says Saul kept an eye on David it's what we do when we're in the comparison trap so the communion table is in our line of sight and if we come to this table and we receive the bread and the cup then we are proclaiming the kingship of Jesus over everything and we are proclaiming our allegiance to Jesus over everything else and at his table and in his kingdom as his people there is no place for these comparison games there is no place for the sizing up of others there is no place for the picking and the criticizing and the complaining Jesus invites us into a new way of relating to each other and a new way of being with one another. And it's really fairly simple to grasp. In the words of a guy named James K.A. Smith, the Lord's table is a leveling reality in a world of increasing inequalities. What does that mean? It means those who are first, middle, last, rich, poor, black, Hispanic, Indian, Asian, white, Old, young, big, small, educated, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, male, female, single, married, divorced. Whatever distinguishing identity we want to name or compare or criticize or complain about is secondary at most to our first identity as beloved sons and daughters of God who've been rescued by Jesus Christ. And so we come to this table sharing the identity of sinners who have been forgiven and rescued and set free by God's amazing grace. I want you to think about that. We come to this table sharing the identity of sinners. And all those other labels, they're down here somewhere. First, we are sinners who've been rescued by God and recipients of his love and grace. And when this gets down into us, where it's not like a routine or a ritual or, yeah, that's nice. When this actually gets down into us and breaches our defenses and the reality and the truth of what we are remembering and rehearsing and experiencing at this table extends out into our relationships meaning what we receive from Jesus at this table, we then give to others away from this table. When this gets into us, we will experience a greater contentment with others instead of frustration with or complaint or criticism of others. As the table extends beyond this room, in other words, we will be agents of grace who are learning to accept other people and love them as they are. This is not condoning every action. Acceptance is not 
about denying truth. But as the table extends into our lives, we will create spacious and gracious cultures around us where other people can breathe and they can experience love and find God and grow toward Him and in Him. Back in Luke 22, Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? Then this great statement from Jesus, but I am among you as one who serves. And I will remind us, there were two at his table, two whom he had served, two whose feet he had just washed, who would soon turn their back on him. And indeed, one of those two was never really a follower of his in the first place. And yet Jesus loved, and he served, and he poured himself out. Now it sounds way out there, because it is. It's way out in the land of radical grace, way out in the land of actually following Jesus. It's way out in the land where if the Spirit doesn't empower, it's an impossibility. Less comparison and more contentment with others means we let go of trying to fix and change them. We let go of having to be their Holy Spirit. We let go of having to be the one who criticizes their flaws and complains about their incompleteness. When the table extends beyond this room, we approach other people in the gracious posture of, I am among you as one who serves. And we abandon the rest and let the Spirit of God do His job. Would you pray with me? And I just want to give you a moment of quiet rest. Because I think this notion of comparison and the corresponding cousins of complaint and criticism, I have a hunch most of us have plenty of ways of thinking this one through in light of who we are and in light of how we live. So I just want to give you a moment to think about Jesus and his example And perhaps the question, what is he inviting you into?